The reading this evening is in two parts. Uh, We're starting in Daniel, in chapter 10, which is on page 896 in the Church Bibles. And if you can also keep one finger in 1 Peter chapter 1, which is on page 1216. So, Daniel chapter 10 and then 1 Peter chapter 1. So starting in Daniel chapter 10, page 896. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, No meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding, and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me, and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, 
Be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the Book of Truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And then turning to page 1216 to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then on to verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to be with you uh, again this evening. I have this opportunity, firstly, to join you uh, for worship, Uh, and especially to have our our hearts and our minds challenged. I hope as you were uh, listening to that, reading along with it, your your mind was being exercised and challenged. I know uh, mine was and certainly has been preparing uh, for this evening. Um, We've got a challenging uh, passage, so I think it would be great. You never pray too much. So let's just have another quick prayer as uh, as we ask God to help us to, to listen to him. Lord God Almighty, you are the one who reveals truth to your people through your written word. So we ask, please open our minds, open our hearts to what you have in store for all of us this evening. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So um, do flip back, if you've got Bible in front of you, to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, We'll reference that other uh, reading in a little bit, but we'll stick on page 896, 897. I want to start with a question, though get us thinking, can you think of a time in your life, perhaps even recently, when you've experienced real fear? Can you think of a time when you've experienced real fear? I'm talking about the kind of time where you, you, you're trembling, you've, you've got cold sweats, kind of rapid uh, breathing uh, and quick heartbeats. Have you ever experienced uh, those moments of fear. It's, it's not nice. So we understand there's all sorts of reasons why you need that, the sort of fight and flight response to danger. In Daniel chapter 10, we get a, a rare chance to see someone's fear. But it's not just anyone. He is a prophet of the Lord. Perhaps the kind of person who we wouldn't expect to be getting afraid, getting fearful, getting trembling and nervous. Daniel, surely everything he's been through, he would He's got it all together. 
But let's step back, though. Let's, let's think about where we are this evening, where we've got to uh, in this series looking at the book of Daniel. And uh, if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll notice that there's, there's a pattern in Daniel. You've got kind of two sections to the book. You've got chapters one to six, which is the bit that most of us know, the bits, you know, like um, uh, the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Uh, and then we stop at the end of chapter 6 because it starts to get uh, a bit weird, doesn't it? But chapters 7 to 12 contain these visions, these, in, these encounters that, uh, that Daniel was having with God and with these heavenly beings, all these interesting, bizarre images. But actually, chapters 1 to 6 and 7 to 12 are telling us the same story. That the whole of the book of Daniel can be summarized in one message, that the Lord God is sovereign over the nations of men. The Lord God is sovereign over the nations of men. We see that expressed in the visions, like the one that we've just read. Uh, We see it in the stories, like in the lion's den and the fiery furnace. The Lord is God over every nation and is working his purposes out. That should come as a, a great... Uh, degree of hope to us. Great, wonderful thing. The Lord is God over every nation. He's working his purposes out through all of these things. That's what these visions tell us. He's working his purposes out for his glory, for his kingdom, and for the good of us, his children. But reading Daniel chapter 10, listening to that, particularly if you're, if you're new to the Bible, um, feels a bit odd, doesn't it? All kinds of things going on there. Um, And it's certainly, I I had to read this through several times before I began to really make sense of it. That might just be because I'm a little bit slow. Um, But it's the kind of thing that's worth coming back to and reading again. Uh, One of the reasons why we find it hard is it's what's called an apocalyptic text. This is what we get in the second half of Daniel. Um, It's not the kind of reading that you're probably going to find in many kind of toddlers and children's Bibles. Um, It's certainly probably not the kind of thing that you want to print out and frame and put nicely uh, in your hall at home, Daniel chapter 10. And that's because when we read something like this, we get a bit scared. It's bizarre. It seems otherworldly, doesn't it? All of these visions and these strange images that we see in the second part of Daniel chapter 10. But we don't need to be afraid, okay? Don't be afraid when we read something like Daniel chapter 10. Uh, apocalyptic texts like this, and, and famously in, light in the book of Revelation, are there to describe what's happening in our world from heaven's perspective. Apocalyptic texts like this are describing what's happening in our world from heaven's eyes. Let's have a look, with, shall we, at, um, at uh, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So what we have here is like going behind the curtain at a big West End performance. Okay, so you've got the audience out there, you've got the performers on the stage and everything happening backstage. So you go and you have a look backstage and you see what's going on. Uh, and you see all of the lighting equipment, all of the electrics, you see the director, you see all the props, the makeup artists, um, all of the stage directions, all of that stuff going on. But none of the people out there see that. All they see is what's being performed on the stage. But Daniel chapter 10 is like stepping backstage to seeing actually 
what's going on from behind the scenes. Most people don't see that, though, do they? They're happy to sit in the audience and just observe what's happening. And there's a difference between what the audience sees and what you see when you go backstage, what the director sees. The vision of Daniel 10 is what the director sees. It's behind the scenes what God is doing in the world, in Daniel's day and, as we'll see, into the future too. Just to explain, Daniel chapter 10 all the way to chapter 12 is one vision, uh, but it's split into three different parts. The first bit we're looking at this evening uh, is kind of the when and how the vision came about. Uh, chapter 11 is the vision itself, and then chapter 12 is the kind of how bring it all together in the conclusion. So you might ask, why don't we just skip to chapter 11? Why do we need to learn you know, some of the background information when and how it happens? Well, firstly, we believe that everything that we have in the Bible is there because God wants us to read it. But secondly, it's really important we look at Daniel chapter 10 before moving on. Because not only does it show us that theme in Daniel that God is sovereign over all of the nations of men, but it also shows us this wonderful, intimate glimpse of God's care for his messenger. God's care for Daniel this prophet. So we see both the the enormous sovereignty of God and we see his personal care for one of his friends. So let's get into the passage a bit more now. And the first thing that we see is when we go through chapter 10 is we see the prophet's dilemma. The prophet's dilemma, picking up from verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Now, in the last chapter, um, those who were there for that, um, Daniel had been praying to God. He had been interceding, standing uh, in between the people and God, praying for them. He'd been confessing the sins of those people. And in chapter 9, verse 16, he asks a very specific prayer. He asks God to turn away his righteous anger from his people and all their sin, and instead to show them forgiveness, to set them free. Don't forget, they were in exile because of their sin. They'd been taken away from, from Israel, from Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. They'd been taken into exile. Daniel says, please forgive them. Please turn away your righteous anger. And here we see at the beginning of chapter 10, he does. He's heard Daniel's prayer. He's answered him. He has shown forgiveness by setting them free. And with the arrival of King Cyrus, uh, this great edict throughout the land that actually the Jews can now return home. Not all of them want to. Some of them are quite happy staying in Babylon. Some of them perhaps decide to go later. But some of them are keen to go home. But the important thing is Daniel has heard from God and in his sovereignty, God has answered Daniel by setting the people free. The Babylonians have been defeated, that enemy of God's people, and the land is now being ruled by different people, by King Cyrus the Persian, who sets the people free. In chapter 10, we are three years into Cyrus's reign, which... um, People worked out means that's 536 BC. So you have a time machine, you could go back. And the reason why they know that is because there's this little thing in the British Museum called the, the Cyrus Cylinder. You can go up and actually see it. And it's got in cuneiform writing um, 
when Cyrus came to the throne in 539 BC. So three years after that, 536 BC, this is when it happens. And we know it was just after Passover. Be really specific about uh, when it happened, which just adds to the authenticity of what we have in our Bibles. It's true. But as good news as this is, you think Daniel would be delighted, wouldn't he? Hooray, God's, God's forgiven the people. We can all go home and we can be happy again. But Daniel has a dilemma. The prophet has a dilemma. That's why he's, do you see, he's not acting like someone who's happy, is he? Or delighted. He's practicing these, what we call, spiritual disciplines. He's fasting. He's mourning. And he's praying. Those are really good things to do. If you are facing a dilemma, those spiritual disciplines are really good. Taking out time to to fast, to mourn, and to pray. But his behavior, Daniel's behavior, shows us that he's hungry, isn't he? Daniel's hungry, not just for food, because he seems to be shunning food. He's fasting. He's hungry for something far more important. And our New Testament reading helps us to understand what he was hungry for. What could this, this prophet be hungry for? He's just seen God answer his prayer. All the people are going back, well, most of them are going back to Jerusalem. Why is, what is he hungering for? Well, Daniel is hungering for the salvation that was yet to come. He was hungering for the salvation that was yet to come from God. And we see that in our New Testament reading from 1 Peter, which says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. So the Spirit of Christ was at work in Daniel in 536 BC, pointing him, making him a hunger for a greater salvation yet to come. It's an amazing way of how the the Old and New Testament show that they're not two different things, but actually it's God getting the prophets hungering and ready for the salvation that is to come. So for what Daniel can see, on one hand, God is providing a salvation for the Jews and saving them, bringing them out of Babylon back to the promised land through King Cyrus. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit causes Daniel to, to look around and see, but there's still this massive need. Yes, my people are going home, but they still need to be saved. They don't need to be saved from a battle from a, a big uh, warlord like, like the king. They need to be saved from the battle on the inside. They need to be saved from sin. And the Holy Spirit is causing Daniel to hunger for salvation. Let's pause and think about that. Are you hungry for salvation? Are you hungry for God to save you? Do, you? do you hunger for God to save you when you see just the pain and evil in the world? Do you hunger for God's salvation? Do you hunger for God's salvation when you see the state of your own heart? When for the umpteenth time that you've caved into that same temptation to sin? Is there a part of you that just craves, Jesus, just rescue me now, please? that's a good thing and that is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Daniel's first dilemma though is found in longing for God's salvation. How long is it going to be until it happens? Where will it happen? When will it happen? How will it happen? Who will it happen through? That's his first dilemma. 
But his second dilemma comes from the challenge of being a messenger for God. And that's, that's a big theme in Daniel chapter 10, the challenge of being a prophet for God. And Daniel, they reckon, is probably in his 80s by about this point. He's seeing all the people go back to Jerusalem. He's standing there on the river Tigris. And he's still occupying this office of a prophet, someone who speaks forth the words of God. And, and the office of a prophet is not for anyone. It's a costly calling. Many of the prophets were killed for what they said. It wasn't a popular thing to be a prophet. In, in fact, it was one full of fear. Fears all around. Fears of what the authorities might think or say or do. Take, for example, someone like John the Baptist and what Herod did to him. But the second and far greater fear is not actually what humans might do to you, but actually the fear of entering into the holy presence of God. Do you notice those times when, when Daniel's brought before the king? He's not falling on his face cowering then, is he? But when he experiences the radiant holiness of God, that's when he's down on the floor and he's terrified to hear God's very words. Words infinitely more powerful than everything in the universe put together. This is his dilemma. A dilemma that comes from encountering the pure, majestic holiness. The power of God. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, that sounds a bit strange. It doesn't sound like the kind of God uh, I know or I'd like to believe in. But actually, it's what the Bible says is true. God is awesome. He's majestic, powerful, holy. We might not think of God in these ways. We don't think it sounds very attractive if we're, if we're talking to other people about our faith, that God is someone who we should fear. But the Bible says the opposite is true. Now, we need to define what fear means. It doesn't mean like being scared of a bully. It's the kind of fear and awe you get when you stand over Niagara Falls and you decide it's not a good idea to jump in. But the Bible says the opposite is true. We shouldn't shun fear of God. The book of Proverbs, its summary point is all about that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To live a good and wise life is to fear God. It's to have that awe of the Almighty. Um, it's a little bit like with Aslan in Narnia. I love the uh, Narnia books. Um, I'm sure some of you do too. Where Lucy says after finding out that Aslan is a lion, she says, I don't think I'd much like to meet a lion is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, who she's having a conversation with, uh, says, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. And it's true, isn't it? And that's, that's true about God to the nth degree. God is to be feared, yes. He's not safe. But he's good. And that's why the ministry of a prophet like Daniel is a fearful one. If you've ever felt that anxiety, you might relate about maybe sharing your faith with someone, or a co-worker, or someone at college, or school, or, or family member, sharing the fact that you are a Christian. It can be a scary thing, living in a different way. It can be a costly thing, doing what's right. Well, if that's you, then you're in good company, because Daniel knows something of that fear too. And that's why it's important that, that please do pray and support those in the church entrusted with that responsibility. Pray for, for Nick and Ben. Pray for their families. Pray for, for all your leaders, for your PCC. Pray for all the preachers. 
Bible teachers, people with that responsibility. It is a fearful calling, but it's a good one. So how does God deal with Daniel's fear and longings? Well, that's what we see in the second part of this, and it is the prophet's encounter. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen. I don't know if it was fine linen or not. It might have been his uh, 12th wedding anniversary. Um, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. It's scary for them too. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground." We've already spoken about the fear of being a prophet of God, and well, here's why. Daniel's terrified as he's trying to make out what's happening here. This, this incredible uh, figure who's standing before him. The others around him don't really understand what's going on. They, they run away terrified. Um, he's terrified too, gazing up, and then he kind of falls to the ground at the end, into this deep sleep. It's like he's passed out. It's like he's fainted. This heavenly messenger appears, and it's absolutely incredible out of this world. It's one of those moments of stepping behind the curtain, seeing what's going on from heaven's eyes. And it's important to be reminded that, that Daniel responded like this. I think sometimes when we read through books like Daniel, and we think, well, come on, he's got to have got used to this kind of thing happening now. We've seen this happen before. All these weird visions and writing on the wall and stuff like that. Surely Daniel's got used to this, but clearly not. This is still absolutely incredible, isn't it? Don't forget he's living to be over 70, so these things aren't happening all at once. They're not happening within a week. These things are happening maybe once a decade. Now, we've seen visions before. You've seen visions before in, in Daniel and bizarre creatures. But this time, something else is going on. Do you notice it's not just a vision? There's a conversation going on here. Daniel is being spoken to. We see that in uh, verse 12. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. Now, one of the big questions here I don't know the answer to, I'd be really interested to find out what uh, your thoughts is, is who is this speaking? You read through the, the commentaries on this, and some people say, well, this is, this is God, or what they call like an appearance of God, a, a theophany. Some people say it's the Son of God, which they call a Christophany. Or some say it's one of the angels. And... Uh, the thing is, when you read through the Old Testament, you get these kind of heavenly encounters. It's not always that obvious to tell. Is it God speaking? Is it an angel speaking? Well, I'm not actually 100% sure, but I don't think that matters because what's clear is this is some sort of heavenly messenger, isn't it? Someone sent by God, whether it is God himself. I think it's probably not God. I think it probably is uh, an angel. Um, some people said they think it's the angel Gabriel who's got that, seems to have that particular uh, mission of delivering messages 
obviously some pretty famous ones that we know about. He has a special role as a messenger who brings God's message of revelation. Others have said it might be the son of God, but I think uh, it's probably Gabriel. Um, Others have said that there might be two figures here to explain what's going on in verse 16. Uh, Maybe you want to do some homework and then you can let let me or Don know. But I'll let you make your own, own mind up on that and maybe tell us after the service. But all that aside, what we do know is that this heavenly messenger or these heavenly messengers, their presence, the fact that they are there is a response to Daniel's prayer and to what Daniel needs. However, as the veil gets drawn back, well, things begin to become even more puzzling. We go to verse 13. But the prince, this is the angel speaking, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. That makes think it's probably not God because someone is resisting this person and you can't resist God. He's irresistible. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now what this is getting at, these, this, these aren't actual uh, human beings. These are spiritual beings here. Michael the king of Persia, the Persian kingdom. These are spiritual beings that is being spoken about here. Again, it's behind the scenes stuff. What this is getting at is there are spiritual forces at work in our world that that we don't know about. The prince of Persia is not a human being, but a spiritual one. Involved with the nation of Persia in some way, that's the country who have come in and taken over the Babylonians. He's involved with the nation in some way. He's an enemy of God who's trying to thwart God's plans. That's why he stopped this other angel from getting to Daniel. And Michael, who's another angel, seems to be responsible for the Jewish people. Uh, He's involved in helping to defend and to help this other angel. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds really weird, really strange. But actually, I think it's really helpful. It's helpful for a couple of reasons for what we call the truths of Christian doctrine. The first is that God's people are not alone in conflict. When we are battling things, we are not alone. It's not just about what we can see with our eyes or who we can see with our eyes. But God has other spiritual agents serving his purposes. They perfectly obey his will and they are for us, not against us. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that spiritual warfare is a reality for all Christians. We turn to Ephesians. We, we see the Apostle Paul uh, saying that. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So we are involved in warfare. We all experience it if we are Christians. And that warfare is between good and evil as well behind the scenes. Not just with people who we can see. But there's a beautiful paradox to the gospel, isn't there? When we're thinking about warfare. Firstly is that, yes, while we're at war, well, the battle is already won. The battle is already over, isn't it? Not through uh, a king going in and and killing the enemies, but rather by the king coming and dying on a cross. 
some have linked it to um, what happened in 1944 at the D-Day landings, when the Allies successfully invaded um, German-occupied France. Actually, the war wasn't over at that point, but the, the back of the enemy had been broken. It was only a matter of time until victory was declared. There were still battles to be fought, but it was only a matter of time. The same is true for us. The battle has been won at the cross. There are still battles to face, but it's inevitable where it's all going. Important though, isn't it, for us to remember that there are spiritual forces at work in our world, spiritual forces that don't want the kingdom of God to succeed, who would try as hard as they might to, to thwart those purposes of God. Those forces, they exist in our nation, they exist in our city, they exist in our roads, in our organizations, in our jobs, and even in our schools. But at the same time, God has his children in all of those places. He has Christians in all of those places, bringing forth the light of Christ, and Christ is victorious. But how does all of this help Daniel? Well, we've seen his dilemma. We've seen this incredible heavenly encounter that he's had, and the purpose of this is to bring the prophet's comfort. Reading from verse 15. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you've given me strength. Now, there's a bit of back and forth going on there, but I wonder if you notice that one thing, the one thing that Daniel was given. He was given strength to confess his weakness. Strength to confess and admit to his weakness. It's only when he recognized and confessed that, openly admitted that he was weak, it's only at that point was he strengthened and he experienced the peace that comes alone from God. Peace, be strong now, be strong. That's not an easy thing to admit, is it? That we're weak, that we're helpless, that we're only strong in God's strength. That's a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over when considering Christianity on things like the Alpha Course. You have to admit that you're weak. That might be easy for some of us, but for some it's not. It's a stumbling block. Pride gets in the way. But actually there's a reason why that's the first step on things like 12-step programs with Alcoholics Anonymous, that, that need to admit your own weakness and that you can't fix yourself. But a Christian is someone who admits to the fact that they are weak without Christ. They are weak in fighting sin. They are weak in resisting temptation. That doesn't disqualify us from the kingdom. It allows us to enter into it. 
In return for admitting our weakness, we receive the strength of Christ through his death, resurrection, and by his spirit. That's why Holy Communion that we'll celebrate in a few moments' time is such an important part of a Christian spiritual discipline. We seek nourishment from Christ in the scriptures and in the sacraments as well. In communion, as we come forward, we recognize our weakness. And as a result, Christ strengthens us and calls us his own. So whatever you fear then, if you are feeling fear today or you think as I return home, there's all sorts of things coming up this week. Maybe, maybe things happening at work or at school or at home. Whatever you fear, Christ is for you and he is enough. Whenever you feel weak, Christ is for you and he is enough. Whenever you face the, seemingly the greatest enemy and the warfare is knocking at your soul, Christ is for you, and he is enough. Daniel 10 tells us that we are at war. There is warfare, real spiritual warfare, but our weapons are not swords and shields, but prayer, evangelism, the Holy Spirit. We are not alone against the spiritual forces of evil, but as we see here, we're joined by the spiritual servants of God. Behind the scenes, the whole company of heaven. And we remember that at the end of the day, the war has already been won. Not through might and our own strength, but through the precious death of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins.